Welcome to PLOSCast, the podcast about science, academia, and the future of scholarship. I'm Elizabeth Siever. My guest today is Lauren Maggio. She's an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University, specializing in health professions education. We talked about how medical students find references online using tools like Wikipedia, Google Scholar, and PubMed, and other issues related to medical research training. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Lauren. It's so great to have you on PlosCast. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm glad to be here today. Could you tell us about how you got into your current profession and what is a medical librarian, which I know is your background? Sure. So I think like many librarians, I got here using a twisty-turvy, curvy kind of a way. Even young, I knew I was really interested in information and the organization of information. And so I decided to go into library school. But initially, I had wanted to just be an education librarian. And in my medical libraries class, which I took because it just happened to fit into my schedule, my professor actually offered me my first library job. And that was to be his director of education at the Boston University Medical Library. And when I was interviewing, I said, well, I can do this for a little while, but I really, my passion is in education libraries and I'm going to leave. And he said, you're never going to leave medicine. I said, oh yeah, okay, sure. (laughs) Um, You know, 10 years later, I'm still very much in medicine and I really love the field. So after Boston University, I I went to Stanford where I had the chance to co-lead their evidence-based medicine curriculum and to also act as a clinical librarian. So that meant in the mornings, I would be zipping around the wards with our clinical teams, helping to connect them with clinical information right at the point of care, and more importantly, to teach them how they could get access to information quickly. Being on the wards, experiencing the way in which physicians access information to help take care of their patients was fascinating, and that led me to take on my doctoral degree at University of California, San Francisco, where I studied just that question about how do physicians access information, and how do we, more importantly, teach our physicians of the future how to do that in an efficient way. I finished up my PhD, was still really interested in information use, and moved into a now a faculty position at Uniformed Services University, where I still study how physicians use information, but I've gone even broader to look into different contexts regarding the way in which the public accesses information. So I look at newspapers to understand the way in which journal literature is embedded into those and how the public interacts with that primary literature. I look at Wikipedia and think about how are people getting information from Wikipedia, especially how are they traversing through Wikipedia to get to journal articles and references. So it's been a long and winding road, but it's been an amazing road. And I've really been able to formulate questions and ideas based on what I'm seeing and then think about implementation of solutions based on research. And that's been really quite fun. That's really interesting. And I think a lot of times researchers, you know, when they think about publishing, you know, they might think of their articles now being out in the world, but really that's just sort of the first step to reaching their audience. So it seems sort of cool, like you're kind of exploring that space, you know, what happens after publication? How does it get to the people who would be interested in it or want it? How do they even find it to begin with? Right. And I think I've also become interested in the way in which the public understands or doesn't understand where that literature is coming from. So if they're reading a newspaper article, do they understand that that newspaper article is a translation or representation of a scientific study? And how do we make sure they they understand that component of it. And that, you know, how does that impact their trust? How does that impact, you know, their decision to share something, to talk about it with their physician? 
I think there's a lot of implications there that, that are quite interesting and, and haven't really been explored. Ah, so what studies uh, have you done looking at the public's understanding of science? Um, so we're, we are, um, and I say we because almost all of the information science research is done in a, a multidisciplinary team. So we, we actually just did a small pilot study where for 2016, we looked at newspaper articles that had cancer oncology in the title. And we were interested to know whether or not those articles that they're referencing, are they even open access? Can people get to those articles? And we, we thought it was so important. We published it on Medium right away um, because we found that 60% of the articles or over 60% of the articles will lead the public to a paywall. And we, we found that surprising. Even as open access advocates, we were surprised how closed that was. Um, and then we start to think about, well, the public doesn't even have access to make that kind of a confirmation or to know what they're looking at. Another study that I am kicking off with collaborators has to do with, um, it's an eye tracking study. So we are watching as people read the news, and these are articles that have links to the primary literature. If they click the link, we're very curious to see what they do. From our pilot studies, they're not clicking the link. So then we have a debrief and talk to them about well, why did they click the link? What do they think they might find when they click the link? And how do they think those two pieces relate? And that has really surprised me. As a scientist, it just to me, it, I just thought, oh, of course, everyone knows what that is and why it's there. And that isn't bearing out in our research. And again, we've only done a small pilot, but we are really looking into digging into that and trying to, at the end, trying to think about how to help people understand the kind of the ecosystem of scientific publication and the way it relates to journalism. And where do you think some of that effort needs to come from? Is this something that's more of a, a literacy issue? Is it more of a user experience issue on websites to make it clear what sources are, where links go? What would be the sort of appropriate level of intervention? Right. And I think it's going to be a multi-pronged intervention. So on this particular team, we have people whose research focuses on health communication. We have journalists. We have people from schools of education to really think about what would a good intervention look like. And I, I don't think we know yet. I think some of it could be the way the, the pages are set up. It could be um, the fact that few people said, I don't know what's going to be there if I click that. You know, is it some kind of signaling? You know, is it information literacy training for people? We just don't know yet. And so that's why it's kind of exciting to be exploring this and kind of delving deeper into this in a qualitative way to get, get a sense of what's, what's happening. Absolutely. Something else that I'm really interested in, especially because we met each other at the Wikisite conference, is uh, the relationship between uh, the medical literature and Wikipedia specifically as one particular gateway to medical research. I know that you did a study for Wiki Project Medicine looking at citation links. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that research project? Sure. Yeah, that was, it's still going. So this was a really fun project to do. And it actually came to be for very practical reasons. The first one was I had the opportunity to teach a course at University of California, San Francisco, where I was helping the students edit Wikipedia. So the medical students were being taught how to edit Wikipedia. And I spent a lot of time working with them to get the exact right citation, make sure we had it in there perfectly. And I realized, wow, we're spending all this time. Do people even click on these? Mm -hmm. And the other component was when I was a clinical librarian, I would often be sitting in the team room with the physicians as they prepared their orders, made diagnoses, etc. And I saw a lot of people using Wikipedia. 
And they knew I was a librarian. So they kind of joke with me like, oh, don't worry. I always look at the references. No problem. And I was like, hmm, I don't know. I don't see a lot of references being looked at. So let's see if we can really find out, do people click DOI references from Wikipedia? And I was very fortunate. I communicated with the research team at Wikipedia. They were fantastic. Um, unfortunately, they didn't have that piece of data. So we had to get creative. And we worked with another group, Crossref, to get data to, to learn whether or not people are clicking. And after about a year of study, what we found was that for every 2,000 page views of Wikipedia, you get one click of a DOI. And that is about the same if you're looking at a medical topic or you're looking at a general topic. So we had hypothesized, or maybe in my librarian heart, had hoped mm -hmm. that the that for medicine, it would be a higher click rate because I've spent my whole life training physicians how to find information and telling them about the importance of the primary literature. And again, we know they're they're using Wikipedia, so we hope they're going there. There's also a body of literature about patients, especially that have chronic conditions or oncology diagnoses, they want the papers their doctors are reading. So we were a little bit surprised that it actually was the same. So we're going to continue that research. What we hope for this paper is that it's really a starting point to understand future research in terms of assessing the extent to which Wikipedia acts as a gateway. So we saw this as just a toe in the water to start working with this data and really understanding Wikipedia as that gateway. Hmm. Do you think that there's anything Wikipedia could do or should do to make people be clicking on it more? What do you think would be a sort of more ideal rate of citation clicks? Yeah, I don't know if there's an ideal rate. And I think this also comes back to some of the research that the Wikimedia research team's been doing about motivation for using Wikipedia. And I don't think we're, I mean, there's many times I go to Wikipedia and I don't click the references. It just, I, I don't have that, that particular motivation or that information need. And so for me, it's thinking about how do we target it so that people with information needs that probably should go deeper, they can get that information right away. And they're trained to do that. And they're signaling so they know things like they're not going to hit a paywall and get discouraged. Um, there may also be some work we do with editors to get them also to think about where they're putting references. Do they go in a further reading list or do they do they get embedded in some other way? And so I think there's there's lots of space there to to think about interventions. And again, this is another multidisciplinary team with people from education, from information architecture, health education. Um, so we're hoping to come up again another, you know, multi-pronged look at this. So in terms of understanding scientific articles, we've talked then just now about accessing them or finding them. What do you find in terms of once they're actually at, once the public is, say, at, at an actual article? How are they doing at that sort of literacy or understanding what's going on? How are scientific authors doing at communicating with the general public via scientific articles? Yeah, so that is a tough area, the health literacy component. And this is a whole huge area of study that I, that I can't even begin to, to speak to knowledgeably. But from the medical perspective and for the medical students, we spend a lot of time teaching them how to critically appraise the literature. And I know that many of our NIH institutes like the National Library of Medicine and uh, National Cancer Institute have put a lot of energy and resources into creating products that will help the public translate what they're seeing in the articles. And another example would be the Cochrane Collaboration. They do these fantastic systematic reviews and they always have a plain language summary 
um, which is accessible. They bring a, a patient or a healthcare consumer onto their team to make that actual translation, which I think is fantastic. And we need to think about more approaches like that. I think we don't, I think we're heading that way. And I think some journals are doing that, but it's definitely not uniform. Mm. Do you think that there's differences in the needs for uh, medical students versus general public who, who might have uh, health concerns in, um, in accessibility and legibility? So one of the things that, that struck me as um, I spent a lot of time reading the instructions for editors of Wikipedia for the medical section, and they are very clearly told that this is not this is an encyclopedia. This is not a resource that should allow you to treat a patient. This isn't a point of care tool. So the students... I think they need to, to go into the literature and then they have to critically appraise it depending on that particular patient. And I would say if you are digging into the literature because you or a loved one has a medical condition, you would also need to read that with a critical lens. And one of those lenses is really thinking about how it fits with your goals of care and then being aware of how to bring that into their physician encounter in a way that's going to engage a shared decision to be made. So I think they're using it in slightly different ways. Both are incredibly valuable and both take a level of critical appraisal. Now, I've also advocated in medical education that we need to train our medical students, but also current physicians in shared decision-making in a way that when they do bring information into the encounter, that they are not threatened, they feel very comfortable helping the patient to do a critical appraisal of that and understand it within the context of their own health condition. To me, that shared decision-making component is critically important to people getting the care that's best for their needs and feeling good about their, their care. That makes sense. Do you have uh, collections, maybe a sort of preset to share with individuals about certain common conditions? So in some cases, the physicians definitely have access to different information sheets that have been leveled at an a certain grade level of understanding. Quite often, it's not the physicians that will distribute information. Hospitals, at least for inpatient, will have people that will work specifically with them. Many many of the hospitals also have health libraries or many of the big health practices. So like Kaiser Permanente has a health library and patients are able to go in there, get access to materials that have been made available to them. Mm. In general, do patients take advantage of those sorts of resources? Well, we know... I couldn't speak from the physician office component. However, we do know that people are on the web quite often looking for health information. So I think there's a desire for the information. I couldn't speak directly to whether or not how much use is made of the stuff that comes out of their doctor's office. So another area of research that you've looked at is how medical students are trained to find articles. Mm -hmm. How are students trained to go through the medical literature, and how does that differ from how they end up finding them in practice? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I had structured the training that I did and that kind of aligns with the literature is that medical students are generally trained to find the literature through the lens or the framework of evidence-based medicine. And evidence-based medicine is the combination of the best available research evidence with the physician's expertise and then the patient's goals of care. So you can see where information plays a, a central role. So usually in the first year, the students are taught about PubMed and some of the, the major medical databases. They may also learn about point-of-care tools. So they learn it. They usually have one or two sessions. They are usually not their very favorite sessions because they feel like they can very well search and find whatever they need to have. And I think, and I like the way we actually approach it, is we say, yes, 
you are definitely good searchers. You've gotten this far. You know how to search and find things. However, when you move into the medical space, your information landscape shifts. It's just a different environment. And there's different stakes to the information that you find. Um, so we work with them to understand the critical consumption of that literature. And it's everything from web pages to understand what's quality, what are some of the traps you should look out for, up to doing a critical appraisal of you know, a randomized controlled trial. Now, I did have that luxury of seeing what they did on the wards. And to be honest, they were using a lot of point of care tools. We've published on that. We did a study where we looked at Stanford University's proxy logs for a year. And what we saw was that for every visit to PubMed, there were two visits to the point of care tool up to date. So we know there's a lot of use of synthetic point of care tools. And I think there's just a ton of Googling, which is probably partially why they're getting to Wikipedia. But the thing that's kind of interesting is so they're looking for synthesized reviews that they can work with really quickly. And as I look back at the way we tend to train is that we don't teach them about review articles. We teach them about the big clinical trials. We teach them even how to take apart maybe a systematic review or meta-analysis, but we don't help them to unpack reviews. And for a couple studies I did, we saw that that was a dominant article type that they were looking at or point of care resource. Now, when I started to do that Wikipedia course, at first I was not so sure about Wikipedia. And then I just realized how many of the students were using it. And I think that's, it's just going to be part of our care going forward. And then I became even more inspired about the class because I was like, well, if everybody's using this, let's address it in our training of the medical students and let's make it the best that we possibly can. And that was the idea by having our students go in and do the editing and to think really critically about these medical topics. And there's a phenomenal team of editors that are part of Wiki Project Medicine, which is the medical subset that just do great work. So I, I think what we train them right now is out of sync with how they are actually accessing the information. And I think for me, that's been a major kind of rally cry as to why we need to think more about how we're doing the training. So do you think more of the training would then be meeting students where they are and teaching them how to more effectively use the resources they're already turning to? Yes, I think making sure that they are good consumers of the resources that they're using, and then also introducing them just so they know they're there to other resources that might be helpful to them. Um, you know, I used to get a lot of questions about like physical therapy kind of type questions, and there's a whole database on physical therapy. There's a great database on addiction. And those articles may or may not ever show up in PubMed, but if you are really trying to research addiction or you're trying to get into that deeper for a patient, you should know that there's a database on that. So if you just stick to Googling all the time, you may miss some of these things. It always bothers me when certain people in my field would say, well, you can't use that. And I think that's just a recipe to get them to tune you out. And I think some information is definitely better than no information. And I think if they've tuned you out and they're saying, well, I'm not going to even bother looking it up, then I think we've done a disservice. Mm, absolutely. How do you think we might be able to better highlight some of these other resources for these more specific issues? Like, would there be any way to increase the discoverability of them in addition to training? Yeah, I think part of it comes down to time. So one of the things I quickly realized when I was on the boards was I would say like, oh, there's this great database. Let's take a look at that one or let's do this one. And they just absolutely don't have time for that. So one of the things we did at the Stanford Medical Library was to create a meta search. So we pulled together several of the databases under one search, and then we created facets so they could very quickly get to the study type design they wanted or if they knew they wanted something um, 
you know, we had a toxicology database, we had drug database. If they wanted something from those specific resources, they could go right to them. I think right now, because it's so dispersed, it's really hard. I think we need to do more in regards to aggregation. And some, some tools have done that. I think about the TRIP database that's turning research into practice, that attempts to be a little bit more of a mega search. But unfortunately, a lot of these databases are from different vendors. And so an amalgamation of them is really hard. We were lucky with our in-house programmers to be able to do that and unify things across our subscriptions. But it wasn't easy. And most people, most libraries, like a small hospital library, really couldn't do that. I also think another challenge is that our interfaces are hard. They're hard and they, they don't make a lot of sense. When I think about PubMed, um, I always joke that it took me about six months to really figure out how to use PubMed. And we expect most people to really figure it out in a one-hour session. And it could be my skills were weak, but I, I think it is hard to grasp in a one-hour session. And that's not the learner's fault. And I know there's a lot of people thinking about it and trying to figure out great ways to use it. But I, I think sometimes we put, put it on the user and it's like, well, we need to meet them with an interface that's going to be effective and user-friendly. Are people building tools on top of PubMed's database? Because I know one advantage of them being open is that they have like an API that people can use. And so then maybe they could be building tools on top of it. Do, are there any such initiatives here? Yeah, there are. A lot of them, like Trip, the one I mentioned, that pulls out from PubMed and has an easier search interface. I don't know how much of it is for just searching PubMed as much as they're adding value add onto PubMed, where it you know it gives you the ability to match with journals that might be relevant to your topic. So I agree, it's wonderful that the NLM makes that entire database completely open. You know, companies will pick it up and they will create their own version of it. Um, we've definitely seen some commercial companies do that. So there are other interfaces, and you can search PubMed with Google Scholar. You can search it on just Google as well. It's just not as, um, you know, you, the ordering and things like that are just not as clear. Do you think that in general, Google Scholar's interface is more intuitive and easy to use than PubMed's? Yes, I do. I mean, the thing you lose is you don't have as much control in terms of controlled vocabulary and medical subject headings. But I think that's what so many people are using. It's very familiar. Now, do people know to click the button that you can do some great things with their advanced search? Maybe not. And, you know, maybe surfacing things like, like that would be helpful. Right. I know that personally, a lot of times when I end up doing searches on a variety of websites or services, I always go to advanced search. Mm -hmm. like, give me, give me parameters. Let me, let me limit the scope of what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with medical literature. It's so huge that if you don't put in parameters, you just quickly get overwhelmed and either you don't persist or you take, you know, whatever comes up early in your results. And actually, that reminds me, I had said that in medicine now, you're in a different information landscape. And I think what I would find with some of my students is they would Google it and they would get some kind of an answer from the first page. But I would say to them, you know, it is different. You can't just rely on what comes up in the first results. You have to actually go past that first page as you're looking for information so that you can start to understand the context of your question. I think if you're used to just picking the first two or three, like many of us are in Google, you would miss a lot in the medical literature. Yeah. Do you think that some of that would be also the NLM's search architecture, like what articles they could surface first in search results? Yeah. So the NLM recently, I think about a year and a half ago, had just introduced relevance ranking within PubMed. So they're starting to do that. And that's, it's actually quite powerful. 
So I think that's helping, but again, that's not one of those things unless you really play around with the interface, you would happen to know that it does that. Hmm. I know some of your work and writing has touched on the idea of alt metrics for the literature, the idea of you know capturing other kinds of, of stats other than just which scientific articles cite other scientific articles. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering how that area of alt metrics touches the work that you do and is related to medical literacy. Well, in the health professions field, when I think about it in that context, that's where a lot of my research has been taking place. So we're a very applied field. Usually educators are. We want stuff that's going to make us better teachers, things that we can bring into our classrooms. And that doesn't necessarily translate into a citation. So I started to get interested in what are some of the other ways people are using it. And so have done some research, thanks to altmetrics.com to look at the different places where mentions of medical education articles are coming up and looking at the trends. So we're seeing that in medical education, I mean, it's dwarfed by something like a clinical medical article, but we're seeing a rise in the attention that those articles are getting. And we're seeing, we did a little bit of investigation on, you know, the tweets or the blog posts. And what we are seeing a lot of is, you know, this helped me in my teaching. These are guides for teaching things. These are reviews. You know, one of the most popular one was actually on, you know, how do I actually tweet? And there are other ones that, again, are very instructive. So what we're seeing in the altmetrics, which aligns with the fact that we are so applied, is a sense of people sharing things that they felt found helpful in their practice. And to me, that's incredibly important. Yes, citations are important. But to me as an author, I'm more interested to hear about or to learn that teachers are using my stuff in their classroom. To me, that's the ultimate win. You know, I've helped people potentially become better educators or to take what I've done, try it in their classroom, and then make it better. So from the altmetrics perspective, that has been quite interesting. Also in academic medicine, we tend to only really publish in journals. And I think that's become a narrow space for us getting out to others that might be interested in our work. And I know I've worked before with professors of engineering or business professors, even people that teach chefs how to become chefs. And what we see is a lot of the same problems, but most likely they're not going to read a medical education journal. So this is also another way to get, um, you know, perhaps an article back on feedback, how you might push that out to another group that could find it interesting. And I think for our own population, finding things in other fields that we can also apply has been really valuable. So I'm looking forward to continuing on with this study. I'm also in the middle of another study in which we looked at the relationship between altmetrics and citations in health professional education. And we're starting to see how that's aligning with the existing literature. So it's, it's a really interesting space. And again, because I think we're such an applied field, it's a space that makes sense for the HPE field. Mm. Oh, that does make sense. How do you think we can better aggregate things like phosphylibine and stuff? Do altmetrics grab those yet? I think they've just started to do that. I know some of the other aggregators are grabbing class syllabi. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting place to see if we're getting traction there. I mean, it would be amazing to imagine a day when, you know, we could even get metrics from what goes into learning management systems and things. I mean, that's where so much of our syllabi live or where people post their articles or links to articles. So I think there's still a lot we can learn. And would a lot of those be like institution level platforms? Yeah, they would be institution platforms and they would be, they would definitely need authentication. So I think it's way down the road. I just think that would be an interesting place to see where people are putting things. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking about other conversations I've had with people on PLOSCast where we've talked about sort of the uh, potential pitfalls of institution-specific solutions to things, especially around information management. Then on one hand, you know, it can be really great because I've also talked to a number of librarians um, on podcasts and people involved with libraries or, and previously librarians. You know, on one hand, it can be really great when university offers these kinds of services to their researchers. But on the other hand, sometimes if it doesn't have good interoperability with other platforms, or say they are not good guidelines for how you deal with things that are collaborations across universities, it can be harder to generalize. So I'm, I'm always interested in, in that sort of thing about like how, because it seems like it would make sense that if universities were using similar technology or compatible technology to store this kind of information, that would make it much easier to, to aggregate. Mm-hmm. Or even thinking about more of an open platform. So thinking about what yeah, are the, yeah. the readings that the MOOCs are using? Like, did my reading show up in a, a MOOC about medical education? And I'm just thinking now, like, oh, yeah, why couldn't we extract that? Someone has that information. We could extract it. Right. It could be a, another metric. And that's nice in a way because it's such a global reach of the way in which people are interacting with our, our work. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if MOOCs are sharing that information, but they totally should. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think they are. I mean, it would also, you know, it, it, it brings to mind the fact that if an author perhaps found out, you know, it was being used in a MOOC and... There were all these people that wanted to read it, but it was behind a paywall. Maybe it would help to nudge them to think about maybe what they could do with a preprint or check the status of their article on Sherpa Romeo, see if they could do anything to kind of free up some of that content. So there could be several implications for it. Absolutely. They could also even, you know, do things like integrate on paywall, you know, mm-hmm. you know yep. using browser extensions to try and find green open access versions of articles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look at us solving all of these problems. <laughs> <laughs> So one the one last topic I wanted to make sure I had a chance to get at is the educational model we've talked about mm-hmm. with in person when we had met about the process of peer review mm-hmm. and how there's this general problem in, in academia where there's not necessarily a lot of explicit training for you know graduate students and and trainees uh, to learn how to review articles and from what I understand you had been doing some research that looked at some potential models for what peer review training might look like. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, potentially talk a little about that? Sure. So I won't say I've been doing it from a research perspective, but more of an applied perspective. So sure, I'm, sure. I'm an associate director in a master's and PhD program for health professions education. And so they're basically learning how to be, they're all doctors, nurses, dentists, and they want to learn how to become better teachers and do research in health professions education. And one of the things we want to do is help to build a community of practice, integrate them into our larger scholarly community. And a big piece of that is doing peer reviews. So we have a practicum component that our students have to take to graduate. And one of the options in that practicum is to work with a faculty member on peer reviews. So we work in dyads and we let certain journals know in our field that we're doing this. And we've been given reviews. The students get the review directly and they work, they select a faculty member to work with. So they'll try to figure out who would have the most knowledge in this area. They write, they take a first pass at the review and then the mentor will either meet with them in person or they'll send them the draft and they'll give feedback on their review. And this will go back a few times until the review is is solid. The student will 
return that review under their name. They'll noted that they worked with the faculty member. And we have a, I forget the exact number that they do to get credit for the practicum, but they do this several times. And then they receive course credit for that activity. So they're getting recognition with the journal that they are, they're becoming a part of this community. They get credit in our program, they get an opportunity to work really closely with a faculty member. So we've been really happy with it. I have to say too, I teach the qualitative methods course here, and it's become a big effort in my course to integrate how do you review qualitative research because our students are all health professionals, which is great, but they tend to come from a more clinical background. So qualitative, it's actually been a little bit hard in our field to find people to review qualitative research. So I've been working closely with them The other thing we do with our learners, which I think helps in terms of peer review, is we try to provide them with some scaffolding. So as they take on a review, um, for example, if they're doing a qualitative review with me, I have a framework that will help them to structure their reviews or what are the key points that they should be thinking about, for example, in the methodology or in the discussion. And I've found that that really helps the students, especially as they start, and it helps them to have a sense of self-efficacy in doing reviews. So my hope is they get to the end and they're actually looking to do more reviews. They're kind of into this. And I have to say, our field has been pretty good about sending back to reviewers, not only their comments, but the comments of the other reviewers so that they can kind of benchmark themselves with their peers to see if they're getting it right. And I've had several students send me triumphant emails that are like, I really do know this stuff. I can can be a peer reviewer. And that's such a better attitude. Many of my colleagues who are senior in the field, you know, kind of we grumble about having to do peer reviews versus being excited about it and as a way to show our expertise to learn more about our fields and area of interest. And like I said, they get credit. So they're kind of killing a lot of birds with that one stone. So we've been really happy with that. Yeah, that's really great. It sounds like that sort of formalization is very helpful. I know a lot of reviewers and studies where they've looked at, you know, attitudes about why people review. A lot of people just want to give back to their community. You know, it's, a, it's like doing service, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right? Without good guidance, it doesn't seem as well integrated in you know, something that's really a fundamental part of being a, a researcher. Mm-hmm. That is a really, really cool initiative. Yeah. And I stand on the other side. So I'm an associate editor at the journal Perspectives on Medical Education. And so it's so heartbreaking. You give someone 30 days and you get a really crummy review back. It's like, oh, it's just, I feel for the author who's now waiting. And it's awful when you get reviews that are just not constructive. It's just, it doesn't help anybody. So if we can improve our reviewer pool, we can get people excited about it. We can get them moving swiftly through our graduate program. Then that's fantastic. That's great. Were there any other topics that you wanted to touch on that we didn't have a chance to get to? I think those were the main things. I think think that's all I do in research and things like that. That's a, a huge area. This is so many <laughs> cool, interesting projects at this intersection of medical literature and health training, health professional training, Wikipedia, discoverability, interoperability. It's all connected. Yeah. I mean, I think the nice thing about having an information background is that it applies to so many things and information is just ubiquitous. No matter what project I get on or even when I'm supervising my students, it's like, oh, well, there's an information piece here somewhere. We just have to figure it out. Absolutely. Well, it has been a pleasure talking with you, Lawrence. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Again, my guest today has been Lauren Maggio, the Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University. Have you been enjoying PLOSCast? Like us or write us a review on iTunes. Tweet me at TweeTotaler on Twitter or email us at PLOSCast at PLOS.org. 
PLOSCast is brought to you by PLOS, the Public Library of Science, a nonprofit open access publisher dedicated to transforming how research is communicated. This show is produced by Tessa Gregory and Jen LaLue and edited by Will Jackson. I'm your host, Elizabeth Sieber, and thanks for listening. Thank you.